Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and then let's all stand. I'm going to read this passage to kind of set a context, spend a time with you as kind of a preamble before we get to this, because I think there are things we need to discuss, kind of get our hearts ready, set where it needs to be. Let's take a look at this passage. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We all know that seatbelts can be a hassle. Some people just don't want to wear them. They want to be bothered, don't want to be bothered by it because, uh, you know, we have a law now that says you have to buckle up. Uh, There was one man from New Zealand by the name of Ivan Sejedin who took this to an extreme. Uh, The police had ticketed him 32 times over five years for failing to wear a seatbelt. And nobody was going to tell this guy what to do. So paying the fines got to be big money, but he still refused to buckle up. So he decided to rely on deception, and he made a fake seatbelt that would hang over his shoulder and make it appear like he was buckled in. Well, his trick worked for a time until he had a head-on collision threw himself into the steering wheel, and was killed. I think God has a seatbelt for believers when they are about to collide with false teaching. And the Word of God acts as our protection against false prophets, false teaching. The fact is, if I were to give this message 30 years ago, probably wouldn't get too much pushback. Most people would accept such a thing as truth, the nature of truth, and helping to recognize error. That is no longer the day. Uh, Truth is now seen as just a social construct, and it has seeped into the church. And many within the church are far more um, susceptible because Satan has pried loose this idea of objective truth in the Word of God. And instead, people have accepted common cultural assumptions about reality. Reality is now believed to be privatized, it's feeling based. And these assumptions run far more than political divisions. They're just something that people automatically assume in our culture. I wish I could do a whole sermon on this, but I can't. And it's not the purpose of of this message. But I do want to point some of these out. Mark Sayers spelled out several of these cultural assumptions And again, I give you this because I think it has great influence upon the church. 
Here they are. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, um, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression toward utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Hopefully none of this surprises you, and I think you've heard me talk about these things here and there, but... Here it is anyway. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Five, humans are inherently good. Uh, Six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. I think we can hear that and say, uh, I can't really disagree with any of that. We hear forms of this all the time. We're just, you know, immersed in it. And it affects us. Uh, so that's kind of a skeletal framework that I think is worth, worth mentioning um, because it, it seeps in to us and, and the church. Now, we have a choice. And what some do today and what happened in, in Peter's day was that they lost their biblical moorings. Ross Dodwhite uh, said that the problem with the Western culture is not unbelief, but bad religion. Bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. End quote. Can't disagree with that. I've talked to them. Uh, I've read their books. All right? And so have you. Uh, they reconstruct the Bible to fit within cultural norms. What was yesterday's liberalism is now a self-identified progressivism and permissive Christianity. Lest you think this is something new, we can recall the words of the Apostle Paul as he was saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus after ministering there for a while. And this was his goodbye message. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. <laughs> and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice, 
they come in among us. They look like us. They talk like us. Now listen, let me be quick to add this. Okay? I'm not talking about people who disagree with secondary things. All right? You know, they could have a different eschatological view, a different view about, you know, secondary doctrinal items. But these were things that were major that referred to the gospel being twisted and it was a refusal to believe clear revelation from God's word. Okay? But Christians who once held to clear biblical principles are being drawn away. Right? These false teachers, they they say the name of Jesus. They, they read the same Bible. They talk about love, but they bastardize the meaning. They have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. Christ in the early church did not retreat from the culture. They did not continually attack the culture like many within faith communities do. Uh, What they modeled and what we're called out to do is to value the truth of Scripture, love those in the culture, humbly relate or contextualize the gospel to those around us. It's kind of like Paul standing in the middle of Areopagus in Acts 17. And in that, he holds up a mirror to the culture, describes the culture, and then compares the gospel to that. Wonderful model. You might think, well, wait a minute. I don't have a degree in philosophy. I'm not a great orator. You don't have to be, right? We are simply to allow others to hear the impact that the gospel has had in our own lives. It's as simple as maybe sharing your testimony over coffee. It's inviting friends over to your house and hearing their spiritual story. We had a bunch of pastors and wives over at our house this week, and uh, um, one guy was telling me, yeah, we invited the checkout girl over to our house, and she came over for dinner. Had the opportunity to share the gospel with her. (laughs) I was like, you know, that's the idea. People you work with, uh, whatever. It's, It's maybe knowing a friend who's hurting and embracing them in love and just hearing their story. The gospel extends out to people who are hurting, and then it gives us an opportunity to just share as God opens up the door. Listen, Paul is not standing at the Areopagus to remind us that only the professionals can do this. That is not the message at all. He's just using the gifts that God has given him, and we're to do the same. We just use our gifts. As a church, evangelism, equipping, I love the way Nick said it. It's about relationships, primarily through relationships and community. Authentic relationships, loving and clear communication 
of the change that Christ has made in our life, that can be held up to an increasingly nihilistic culture. That has power. Now listen, it doesn't guarantee success, but it does allow the gospel to shine in, on its own and in genuine community. So at least people can have a clear choice. And how do we measure that success? It's not by a building. It's not by how many people we have in here. It's measured by the depth of our love. And it's measured by the enduring faithfulness to Christ. That's the success. The infiltration of the assumptions I addressed earlier have created a climate where I think Christians are more susceptible to false teaching. And our response is not only living within a community of truth, but to be a part of a church culture that highlights the gospel in its beauty, in its grace, in its freedom. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with a couple from our church, and they were sharing their testimony. They didn't have to embellish anything, okay? They didn't have to give me some kind of, you know, victory speech. They simply told the facts, talked about the difference that Christ has made, and it had me in tears. It's amazing. And I was marveling at how beautiful and powerful Christ is to change us, to transform our lives. We don't need some half-baked truth to appeal to people, right? We don't need laser lights on the stage fashion a service with the prettiest and the coolest people to always just talk about the victories, that's not the model that we follow. The closer we get, I think, to an unvarnished version of who Christ is, his instruction and what he has done in our lives becomes the best version of our church. I've said it before. I don't need Janet to come to me in a miniskirt, all right? Because I love her as she is. And I feel what churches are becoming is they got to, you know, hussy it up. We don't need that. We just don't need it. Paul said, for I consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But Christ chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I often feel like Christians, and by extension the church, feel this weight to 
just make the testimony, our words more palatable to people to either sanitize it or make it sexier, however you want to try to do it. Just talk about the victories. Please know this. This church is never asking you to do that. Okay? And above all else, Christ is never asking us to do that. We start with a base of unimaginable grace and then live our lives in full devotion and honesty towards pleasing our king. We're already accepted. We're already loved. He's already poured that out in our lives. And now I can just give to him out of this motivation of of love and pleasing him. There's no better way to live the Christian life than to be on this treadmill of performance, trying to please somebody. The beauty is how in this crazy culture, and man, it is crazy, right? I mean, it is crazy. Um, And our messed up lives, including mine, right? That Christ is still making us a unified, gospel-centered community. How he is able to do that with the diversity, with the fragility, is an amazing thing. And I praise him for it. I want you to notice something that is sobering and I think downright frightening as we commit to biblical truth. All right? So again, I I set aside this, how the church is to be in the midst of that. All right? And I want us to understand that. We're a gospel community. The culture is not our enemy. We're to love them. We still hold to the truth. But let's understand something. The nature of the battle. John wrote this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false, false prophets have gone out into the world. He's interchanging false prophets with spirits. The notion is that false teachers, false prophets have their origin in, are resourced in, used by other spirits. It's a way of saying they are vehicles for the demonic world. John contends that any assault that causes people to doubt or deny the truth of the gospel is not benign. In fact, it's not even human. Rather, false teaching is sourced in the demonic world. And it's devised by deceitful and seducing spirits. These lies are then propagated by hypocritical liars who masquerade as spiritual teachers or or prophets. Again, please understand, 
I'm not talking about a different, you know, just denomination, somebody who's not in our tribe. Don't take this and run with it to the nth degree. We're talking about people who take the clear revelation of Scripture, particularly as it relates to Christ and the gospel, and they say something different. They take the clear um, commands of Scripture related to our behavior, and they just run to indulge their flesh. That's what Peter means, okay? And when the psalmist spoke of idol worship and false religion, listen to what he said in this regard. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The demons. There is no religion, no worldview or philosophy that is benign. False religion, air, is not static. So, with that in mind, I want you, and this is not new to me, but five lies that Christians believe that torpedo recognizing false teaching. You've probably heard all these things from me before in various forms and fashion, but I want us to understand here are things that we need to be careful on, okay? The idea that truth is nothing more than a social construct. Here are the ideas that, in other words, truth is just made up by the culture or by individual. Now, listen, there are people who do that. I'm not denying that people don't do that. But that is not the nature of objective truth or reality, okay? That there is such a thing as objective reality that's separate from what an individual thinks or what a culture abides by. People say that, um, uh, that if this were the case, that everything is a social construct, then how can those who say it's a social construct even recognize it as such? Okay? I mean, isn't their social construct also a social construct? Why should I believe it? Why should it apply to all societies? It's self-refuting. However, the people who think truth does not reach outside cultures are really hypocritical in this. All you got to do is start bringing up things like racism or, let's say, uh, abuse to women, uh, atrocities of war. And then I start pointing to other cultures. No, you know, that's not right, blah, blah, blah. But again, they're being hypocritical. And I've yet to meet any person who can look at a holocaust or whatever else and say, no, you know, that's not good, that, that's wrong. But if it's all a social construct, we have no right to make any moral statement about any other culture. Um, so, something seems wrong about that. Second, faith and objective facts are always two separate entities. Here the idea is that the scientific world is the only world that can garner truth because it deals with the, the material world. Man, have we seen this, right? Uh, you even have politicians always want to revert to science, all right? In the last few years, if we've learned anything, it's that science is just as susceptible to political agendas as any other field, right? 
I'm not going to draw that out for you because I know I'll get in trouble. Um, yeah, people say that truth cannot be had outside the material world in the realm of religion and faith. But these same people then point to religious leaders who are maybe using their power in evil ways or using sex. And they're thinking, yay, you can't do that. But now wait a minute. Why are you trying to apply some objective moral standard on religious leaders if nothing is objective about what they're doing? But we realize we live in a world in which we know that that religion has something objective to it that needs to be applied. Um, Objective facts, objective morality does matter. But I think what Satan wants is he wants to change the playground of the discussion in which religion is evaluated. Because the thing that makes Christianity shine is the objective truth of there being a real God, a Christ who walked on this earth, who was buried in a real grave, who rose from the dead three days later. Those are objective things that historians point to. Next, to claim to know objective truth is prideful. You see this in a lot of progressive congregations. Anybody who makes some absolute statement, you know, they are just this prideful, arrogant individual. And what you're supposed to do is feign a little ignorance, claim objective truth as unknowable, and then you're humble. But those same people turn right around and point to how egregious it is, you know, to be sure of your faith, to make these claims that Christianity makes. And yet, you know, on one hand, they're throwing objective truth out the window, and on the other hand, they're making objective truth statements. Okay? I just want to point out that for us to claim that we know something about Christ is not necessarily an arrogant thing. Now, I'm not saying Christians can't be arrogant. They can be. But just to say that something is true does not make you arrogant or prideful. I can know a few things. In fact, I would submit to you the guy who says that no objective truth exists is far more arrogant than the person who says a few things exist that are true. How will you know that no objective truth exists? You would have to scan the entire universe to every truth claim (laughs) and know that it's not valid. Who can do that? That's a far more arrogant statement than for me to say, you know, I know a few things that are true, right? I don't know everything, but I know a few things. There's nothing arrogant about that, okay? So we can still communicate with with humility. Number four, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Here the idea is that by just believing something to be true, it becomes true because I am sincere, And we often hear the phrase, you know, it's become true for me. This is nonsensical talk, all right? It's me believing that I'm, you know, a rabbit or a tree. 
That doesn't change the fact that I'm a man. And I'm saying this now in a culture where you now have furries who go to school and thinking that they're animals. That's how far we've gotten away from any kind of objective truth or reality. Fifthly, all religions are basically the same. This is kind of where it leads to. This is what makes it so pernicious, the lies, because it comes across as really almost more peaceful or loving. Well, you know, all religions are kind of the same, saying the same thing, right? Right? That's deadly. Uh, if I said all liquids are the same, would that be true? You know, water or strychnine, all the same. No, of course not. You say, well, Kevin, that's the material world. But you can't say that about religions. Well, um, how can Mormonism be just like Christianity when Mormonism says Jesus and Lucifer were brothers and it denies the gospel? How can Christianity and Buddhism be the same when Buddhism does not recognize sin and objective reality or the reality of Christ's sufferings? How can Christianity and New Age be the same when New Age says that you are God and Christianity says there's only one God? How can Islam and Christianity be the same when the Muslim thinks they have to perform the five pillars of Islam to be reconciled to God? And the Christian says it's through Christ alone. And the Muslim denies the deity of Christ. The only way that religions are all the same if we take none of them seriously. Now, I don't say these things to be arrogant, all right? I've got, you know, a couple Muslim friends, and I can be kind to them and love them, be in discussion with them, and if they desire to talk, I'm more than happy to talk. But it's my first job to just love them. I'm not, I'm not going to give them a boatload of scripture, you know, you've got to believe this, so I'm not... I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying in terms of objective truth, all religions are not the same. Okay? But Satan wants the world to think that they are the same, so the soul will be damned. Because people ignorantly then dismiss the gospel. Peter writes, 2 Peter to address what he calls false teachers. These are people who disagree on major issues, not minor issues. So sometimes Christians will throw around that, you know, so-and-so is a false teacher, you know, because they take a different view of eschatology or different view of tongues. That's silly, okay? Such people are not, they don't deserve that kind of phrasing. What Peter's talking about is something different. Historians tell us that what was present in Peter's day was this early form of Gnosticism. It wasn't a full-blown movement, but it was the beginnings of it where people were, were starting to say that your personal experiences were more important than divine revelation, okay? And that was wreaking havoc in the church. Again, not an established group, but these personal experiences and were also 
coupled with the idea that they were devaluing what was done in the material world, and particularly our bodies. So what that meant is that you could go headlong into sexual pursuits and not have to worry about it. That's what they said, all right? So the identifying marks of these false teachers in 2 Peter was they, they um, elevated experiences over the divine revelation of Scripture, and, and by the way, thank you, Joel, for preaching about that last week, um, and they denied the second coming of Christ. So there was like, you know, no judgment that you have to face, any of that. At least that's what they claimed. And the result was that sexual pr uh, pursuits uh, could be manifested in, in, in full measure. Now, in reality, if you think about this, um, ethical teaching that clearly gives carte blanche to practices the Bible condemns, I think, does deserve the moniker of false teaching. That's what Peter was talking about, okay? Now listen, we can love our family and friends who take a different ethical view. Please hear me out. We can treat others with respect who take an opposite view, but that doesn't change the nature of denying the authority and clarity of God's word. And frankly, sometimes it feels like we are walking a tightrope in maintaining relationships with friends who take positions diametrically opposed to us, especially when they're close to us. It's heartbreaking. I have to confess, sometimes I haven't done that well. Sometimes I have. And I would say the same thing could probably be said about you. We get angry, and rarely does that help, right? Instead, what should be happening is that our hearts break for our family and friends who we see falling away. But know this, they're not our enemy, all right? I have a friend who was a star in campus youth ministry in Denver. Uh, he led many to Christ. Um, he grew up in Kansas on a farm, strong Christian parents. Um, and I had one, uh, one other person in uh, campus ministry tell me, I've never seen a man like this lead more people to Christ than what Mark did. And then he fell into homosexuality. And I got the sense that he and his partner were kind of leaders in that movement in Denver. And he and I would have deep discussions about it. Um, and it became apparent that there were deep-seated issues with his father and with God. Um, it went on and on. He, he moved to San Francisco. Surprise, surprise. Um, with his partner, and later died of AIDS. Now, I'm not saying that every person who, you know, has sexual sin dies like that. But what I can say is, our heart should break for people. Mine does for Mark. And Second Peter says, if it says anything to us, it says that cases like his and others, people that we know, 
that God is serious in dealing with us. If we choose to take a turn into this reckless sexual behavior, you can call me as arrogant as you want, right? But that is what this passage is saying. So what I'm asking us as a congregation is, we have to put on our seatbelts and know that God's word is our safeguard. I tell you, as your pastor and friend, we just don't get to these sexual escapades. We get there by believing and having certain assumptions, like I've already pointed out. So what I'm saying is, watch out for it, okay? We'll talk more about it in the weeks ahead. Let's go before the Lord.